you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter one. And I wanna read this section that we've been covering, James chapter one, uh, verses 19 through the end of chapter one. So just those seven or eight verses there. James one, starting in verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Last week, we we looked at verses 20 through, 22 through 25, living the word, being doers of the word. And I need to back up and remind us of a few things before we look into these two verses. And fair warning for you this morning, my introduction is gonna be much longer than it normally is. And, and the notes that you have in your, your bulletin are the three points that we'll get to. And they'll, they'll flow out of what I'm about to say here in the, these next moments as a result of, of what it looks like to be an obedient Christian in your life. And we're gonna get there, but not yet, okay? Last week, we looked at this mere analogy that James gives us in verses 23 and 24 that I just read. And when you look at a mirror, it shows you yourself, right? We, we talked about that. And James says that when a man disobeys God's word, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, this is incredible for you to understand. This is big. And I want this to stick with you longer than just a few minutes it takes to walk through it. Because uh, it's an incredible principle here. Why does James call the Bible a mirror? Because when you go to the Bible, before it tells you what to do with your life, it shows you who you are. And this is vital, friends. This is what everyone wants to learn. Before the Bible tells you what to do, it shows you who you are. But here's what most people want to do. They go to the mirror to find out what to do before they look at who they are. And if you try to do that first, it won't help you at all. There's so many things in the Bible to uncover, to understand and to, and to apply. It tells us to live with integrity and then the Bible tells you how to do it. Philippians 4 Eight and nine, we read earlier, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace be with you. And the Bible says we're to live with compassion, and then the Bible shows us how. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It says we're to live with justice, and then it shows us how. It tells us how to, to, to live and love, and then shows us how. These are just a few things that James will later expound on in this short book. And James is a smart and caring pastor for us, and he's telling us, don't look at the Bible as a rule book. Don't look at the, the rules and just walk away and, and try to do them. Don't, don't do that, friends, because you won't understand life. Living the Christian life isn't a matter of stoicism. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not just doing it. No, just, just go do it. Just do it. Just say no. Just say yes. Just go do it. That's not what the Christian life is. Some of you have been taught that, and it's, it's not in the Bible. The Bible is a, a mirror, and before it tells you what to do, friends, it shows you who you are. It shows you your condition. See, this is what James says here in verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face. Do you remember that from last week? His natural face. You have to see who you really are. And you see, he says, if you, if you want to live this life, you have to look in the mirror and not look away. You have to continually remember who you are. And, and as you remember who you are, you'll be able to live the Christian life. See, so many want to change life, and yet we don't look in the mirror. A changed life flows out of a radical transformation in your self-understanding. A radical new self-understanding brings a new radical life. Do you see it? A, a, a radical new understanding leads to a new life. Now what happens, though, is someone comes to the Christian life, though, and they read the word, and the word says we need to go forgive. And they read it, and they know they need to go forgive, and they walk away from the word, and they go try to forgive. But forgiving is really hard because they sinned, and it hurts. And they can't do it. Or they fear. They're afraid. And they know they shouldn't be afraid. And they read the Bible and then they walk away. And they try to muster just enough strength so that they don't be afraid. And they can't. And they, and they begin to think, I, I need to try harder. That's it. I'll try harder. I've just got to do this. I've got to muscle through. And I hear this from people. I have to try harder. People come into my office and calling me after 10 years of just trying harder and trying harder and trying harder, and they can't do it. And their life is just one wreck after another wreck because they think they just need to try harder. You see, friends, that's not what the Bible says. And some of you think that's what religion is. Just, just muscle through. Just try hard. Just do more. But that's not what the Bible says we're to do. And James tells us in this book, if, if you can't be selfish, if you can't be forgiving, if you can't be honest, if you can't control your tongue, if you can't be kind to people, it's because you've forgotten who you are and you've walked away from the mirror. You don't take the mirror with you for life. Let me press this a little farther. In Christianity, in, in true religion, in, in pure religion, being comes before doing. Doing flows out of being. It's not the other way around. 
there's many that think the other way around. And the, the normal way we do things is we say, I, I want to be a Christian. I really want to live the Christian life. Now, what does that mean? You know what it means. You're, you're saying, I want to go and try harder. I want to go do something. But that's not what the Bible says. Some people think that doing Christian stuff makes you a Christian. Doing leads to being, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says being leads to doing. It's, it's the other way around. I've asked people, I've, and I've heard it asked, are you a Christian? And, and some have said, well, I hope so. Or they say, I'm, I'm trying. And they're confused. It makes me sad because these people have believed or been taught that, that doing leads to being. And they believe that if they do enough Christian things, that it will make them a Christian. That's not what the Bible says, friends. That isn't what the gospel says. That's not a gospel that saves. That's not good news. Is that good news to you? So many think that that's what religion is, but that's not good news. That's bad news. That's a horrible way to live your life. Because the Bible tells us over and over and over again that we need a Savior. All the way in Genesis 3 through the New Testament, we're described as radically fallen. The Bible tells you over and over that you're so sinful, you're so weak, you're so unable to save yourself that nothing less than a son of God and his death can save you. Nothing less than that. He came to die. And that's the meaning of all the Old Testament sacrifices. There, there had to be blood to cover the sins. Some, something, somebody had to die. Somebody has to pay for what you've done. There, there must be death for who you are at the core of who you are. And we need to understand this. We need to be reminded of this. And I need to make a few applications here. Because for, for some of you parents and grandparents and aunt and uncles and every other church member seated here, you need to take special note here. You see, a lot of parenting is trying to train our kids on how to live and what to do and, how, and what to say and how to think. But we can't get caught up with just the to-do list as parents and miss their hearts. We have to show our kids who they are. You have to show them why they do what they do. James says in chapter 4, because we do what we do because there's a war inside of us. And see, James verse by verse through this book, shows us ourselves. If you're teachers here for Sunday school or Awana and Children's Church, I know it may seem easy to, to talk about behavior of kids. Trust me, I know. There's plenty to talk about with behavior. I have four kids of my own. There's a lot to talk about with behavior. Perhaps you think that you're serving parents well by pointing the kids' hearts to their behavior, but I want to caution you, teachers. Don't make that the center of your teaching. That can't be the center of your teaching. What we need as parents when we drop our little, little kids off for you is not a to-do list. What we need for you is to, to join with us showing our kids who they are. Being comes before doing. They need to see the gospel every single week. Every week. Friends, every lesson, every time we gather in the word, every time 
They need to see the gospel. You have to show them who they are. You have to remind them because they're like me. I forget. I forget. They forget they need to see this. And, and teachers, you need to hold up to them the mirror, the, the word of God, and show our kids that their good behavior is as filthy rags before God. You need to show them with the mirror who they are, radically fallen, who need a radical savior. You need to show them that every week. You need to show them the mirror, show them Christ. Sunday school teachers, young and old, you have to get to the gospel every week. Every lesson in youth group has to get to the gospel. You have to unfold what the mirror says and point it and take it to them and show it. Show it to people. And as parents, this is our job then. We take those kids home, we buck them in the car, and we talk about what they've heard. We talk about it a lot. We show them again the mirror. And in so doing, we show ourselves. Again, remind ourselves. And we apply what, what, what was taught to them during this time gathered together. Friends, Christians won't get bored with the gospel. We won't. We have to show Jesus every week. And, and the Bible tells us over and over and over that we're radically fallen. And the Bible tells us that we cannot become a Christian by doing. Do you see it in there? You, you can't become a Christian by trying. If you're here this morning and this is your first time at church, or you've been in church in the past, and this is new to you, religion. Christianity is not a religion of trying to earn favor with God. It's not. And if you've heard that from others, I'm sorry, that's not the truth. You are radically fallen. Your doing, your, 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 your actions won't save you. It's only through Jesus Christ. You're so radically fallen that nothing less than the Son of God is needed his death for you. It's only the death of, of Jesus that could come and get us out of the pit that we're in. Because the Son of God has to come die for you, because he has to come do everything that you should have done, because he has fulfilled the requirements of God, now you are infinitely exalted. You, Christian, that's seated here this morning, virtually, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're seated at the right hand of God. That means legally. And I know, I know you're seated here in front of me, some to the left and right of me. But friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are accepted by God. Seated with him in heavenly places, it says in Ephesians. You are welcomed by him into his presence. Friend, you are adopted by him as his child. That's just astonishing. You, you, you might have had a, a, not a very great earthly father, but now as a Christian, you have the best father anyone could ask for. You are his child. And only a child can go into his parents' house in the middle of the night and ask for something. And that's what we have with God right now. At any point, at any time, we're accepted. We're his, all because of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that news that needs to be shared? I mean, this is the best news in the world. And yet we're so guilty to, to hoard it to ourselves. This is, this is much better news than try harder. Much better news. And when you look in the Bible, it tells you who you are. And this is what James is driving at here. Christian friends, do you want to live the Christian life? You have to look at the Bible every single day, and you have to look at yourself as the word says. It will give you a radical new self-understanding. It will show you 
that you're radically fallen, but it also shows you that you're infinitely exalted because of Jesus Christ. Remember last week I mentioned Martin Luther. You see, he discovered that when you look at the the law, the perfect law, when you see the scripture, when the mirror of the word shows you yourself, it, it deals with you. And you come away feeling condemned because the more you look at the law, the more you realize that you fall short every time. But you can't just stop there. Because the Bible doesn't stop there. You have to look and you read the word and you see the man, Christ Jesus, the only one who ever fulfilled the law. And you see Christ and you see that you're saved because of Christ. God made him who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the only one who came to fulfill the law of God, went to the cross and took the penalty for our law-breaking lives. And Jesus came as a substitute because we couldn't keep the law. We, we couldn't do all that the law required. We, we always fall short. And he went to the cross and he died and he paid the penalty for our rebellion against the holy God. And friends, Christian friends, if, if, if you can't obey what the Bible says, it's probably because you've forgotten. You, you've forgotten what it's already told you about yourself. You, you've read the word and then you've walked away from the word. You've forgotten how sinful you are. You've also forgotten how accepted you are. You've forgotten how weak you are by yourself, and you've forgotten how strong you are in Jesus Christ. And all at once, it's, it's rather amazing, friends. The, the Bible is so wise and careful and perfect. And this is the mirror that we need for our lives. This is what we need to be reminded of every single day. Now, you might be asking, why would I spend 15 minutes or so walking us through this? Because we need to understand what the mirror is for when we look at the word. The hazard for every one of us seated here is to use the mirror as a to-do list for our lives. And in so doing, we miss the point of the gospel. You can become a good person, but not a changed person. And friends, we have plenty of good people around. I know many that are not Christians that are good people. We need changed people. Radically different people because of the gospel. And so James lays this out for, the, for really the rest of the book. He's going to talk about religion. And it's always, it always finds its basis, its core in the gospel. And if you don't remind yourself of the gospel, if you don't understand the gospel, then you'll live like a hypocrite. And we need the gospel not just to get us into heaven, but we need it for every day of our life. So we're going to look at the rest of our time this morning, what, what true religion is. And there's three points that I, that I want you to see. Frankly, they're, they're right there in the text. And if you have notes, they're listed there. True religion in three areas. True religion controls the tongue. True religion cares for others. And true religion contrasts the world. I had to give it three C's just so you could try to remember it. Controls the tongue, cares for others, contrasts the world. So look at these two verses here, the end of the chapter, verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now you recognize, I think all of you, if you've, unless you've lived in a hole, we've just come out of a week of elections. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that all the political ads will stop for a period. But unfortunately, as I've reflected this week, in the last three years, we've had such an onslaught of political talk and political banter that we've allowed it to control a lot of our lives and our thoughts and our discussions. I'm ashamed of that, actually. I'm ashamed of how much this has dictated the church universal, some to wrong thinking or at least misplaced thinking. And yet here we come to the book of James. James shifting our, our mind, our, our eyes to practical Christianity. And he's going to step on toes on both sides of the fence. See, liberals, those on the left, like to talk about social morality. And the conservatives, those on the right, talk a lot about personal morality. The left tend to say, well, you know, the most important thing is how you spend your money and how you deal with power. If it's your personal life, that's you. You do what you want to do. Who cares about what you do with your sexuality or your body? You go ahead and fulfill all your desires. But on the other side, conservatives say, the most important thing is to keep yourself pure in a, in a chaste life. But with your money, who cares? You earned it. It's your money. You can do whatever you want with it. It's yours. Spend it. No one can influence you to do with your money. It's yours. And so you have on one side that is most concerned with social morality, and on the other side, concerned with personal morality. And here comes Pastor James. And he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He didn't invent this on his own. He, he takes this and his cues from Jesus, his brother. Our Christian life isn't just for ourselves. It should be a life of integrity, a life of compassion, a life of justice. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus says, every part of your life is mine. I want you to know freedom that comes from looking into the law and seeing who you are and living in accordance to the law, to the word of God. And James will tell us throughout the rest of the book of what we should do. But it's always nestled in after telling us we do this because of who we are. And this is important because we, we can forget that as we walk through the rest of the book that, that it's important to understand who we are. And if we forget who we are, we could fall into the hazard of having a false religion, one that's not true, one that's not pure, one that's not following what God would have for us. So this, the remainder of this morning, I want to look at these three points, what true religion is. First, true religion controls the tongue. He says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James begins with the negative description of those that count themselves religious. If, if anyone seems to be religious, this is what James is talking about in the book, as those that have an outward service or an outward devotion. Now, this doesn't necessarily need to be viewed as a negative. It's not as if James is trying to remove formal worship gathering from the life of the believer. He isn't pitting them against each other. He's, he's wanting to purify it. And I would suspect that most of us long for someone to just say plainly to us what we should do. You know, coming to someone, just tell me what I should do. Don't, don't dance around the subject. Don't, don't tiptoe. Don't just be blunt. 
Tell me what I should do. But we fail to see that we cannot just live the Christian life this way. The Christian life isn't just a big, long list of to-dos. Perhaps, though, this is your thinking. This is maybe why you came to me when I, when I said we're going to start the book of James, and you thought, great, James is a very practical book. It's just going to tell me what to do. I just want to know what to do. I want it black and white so I can live that Christian life. James is such a practical book, but, but for friends, as I've already explained, the Christian life isn't something you just muscle through. Isn't just a, a life of putting your head down, trying and trying harder. That's not what it means to be a Christian. So James gives these constant reminders to, to check on who you are and why you live the way you live. And the first check that he gives us here in verse 26 is our tongue. True religion, living the Christian life, means we control our tongue. Any angry talk, gossip, deception, or, or leading failures of speech, and James develops quite a litany of verbal sins in this book. His concern for the use of the tongue is seen throughout the book. He warns against self-justifying speech in chapter 1 when we are tempted to blame God when in fact we tempt ourselves to sin. And he criticizes those who flatter the rich and humiliate the poor in chapter 2. And he condemns the careless speech that wishes someone well, but never lifts a hand to help in chapter 2, verse 16. And he questions the superficial claim that I have faith if no deeds confirm it in chapter 2, verse 18. He deplores the tongues that praise God one moment and curse people the next minute in chapter 3, verse 9. And he chides those who slander and judge their brothers in chapter 4, verse 11. And he condemns boastful plans as if we can do whatever we say we're going to do in the future in chapter 4, verse 13. And James is clear in this book that one of our greatest enemies in this world is our very own tongue. It boasts and curses and sparks conflict that prove that it's set on fire by hell itself. James regards the tongue as an unruly horse that needs a bit and a bridle held tightly by its master to take control over it. The damage that a person's tongue can do is bigger than what you might think. Have you ever considered how much you speak? John MacArthur noted it's been estimated that the average person will speak 18,000 words a day. I think that's just a man. That's enough for a 54-page book. In a year, that amounts to 66 800-page volumes. Up to one-fifth of your life, the average person's life, is spent talking. So if you live to be 80, you will spend 16 years of talking, and I have kids in my house, and I swear it's the first 16. <laughs> Amen? For some of you, it's probably more. Lots and lots of talking, and James is clear for us. Religious activity minus a disciplined tongue reveals a heart that is deceived. Religious activity minus a disciplined tongue reveals a heart that is deceived. We need to take control over our tongues, and that may result in us speaking less. If not, you need to learn to repent more. If we continue down this path of destruction with our tongue, our religion 
is seen as worthless. So in other words, religion without a controlled godly speech is empty and pointless, as unprofitable as bowing before an idol. And this should be a spiritually terrifying statement for us to consider this morning. An out-of-control tongue says that we have a bogus religious devotion, no matter how well this one's devotion is carried out in life. Lehman Strauss says, the true test of a man's religion is not his ability to speak, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. And James is not talking about those that sometimes fall into this sin, that they are, are the ones that have a worthless religion, because if that were the case, we would all be indicted. No, he's talking with those that have a habitually unbridled tongue, who never take control of the tongue, who have no desire to take control over their tongue, who, when reproved or rebuked, lash back with their tongue. That is who James is talking about. Even though their church attendance is unmatched, their, their Bible knowledge is unassailable, their prayers are many, their tithes are big, even though all this may be seen by others, if they have an unbridled tongue and destroy people with it, they have ultimately deceived their own hearts and their religion, James says, is worthless. True religion controls the tongue. And listen, friends, what the tongue says ultimately reveals the heart. Jesus explained this for us in no uncertain terms when he had a heated exchange with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How many have ever been called a viper? I haven't. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure bring forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That should bring a pause to us also, shouldn't it? What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Whatever is ruling our heart will most likely come out of our mouths. And James says, true religion controls the tongue. Friends, we need to spend time before the mirror, looking at ourselves, looking at our speech, coming away from the mirror with the word to apply in our lives. And for some of us, that might mean that we need to speak less. Careful with the words that we use. God promises to, to bring help and power to us as Christians. The Holy Spirit indwelling us to, to radically transform our speech, to be honoring and glorifying to him. So first, true religion controls the time. Second, true religion cares for others. If those convicted of their first lack of acceptable religion they were most likely sent reeling by James's second point. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Do you count yourself to be religious? <clears throat> you will be the ones who care for those that are facing distressing life situations. James identifies two groups of people who would have struggled the most in Jewish society at this time, orphans and widows. Their affliction literally pressure and hardships of misfortune in the world that they live. These are social classes that were looked down upon by those that lived around them. 
they were forgotten by many. They represented the poor, the defenseless, the those that couldn't take care of themselves, members of society. They, they suffered poverty and expert, um, they were exploited. And mankind looks to continue that. But God always desires to protect these. God is the father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, it says in Psalm 68.5. God watches over them in Psalm 146.9. And he curses those who deprive them of justice, as Deuteronomy 27, 19 tells us. Time and again in the Bible, God makes it known that his people are to be the ones who look after, who are to protect and supply for those who cannot. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 16, and 24, and 26, and 27. Then in Acts 6, and 1 Timothy 5, over and over and over again, God is trying to communicate to us. This is how he, he acts, and this is how we should act. This is true religion, looking to care for others. And James calls this religion pure and undefiled. Pure and undefiled. He's talking about cleanliness and the absence of contamination. And the one who, who are there to please uh, the Lord in religious life is the ones that take care of those in need. Now, this is important to know because there are those that believe in our world that a religious life sometimes is done to impress others. And they won't say it out loud, but that's how they live. They, they serve to be seen. They, they pray out loud as to be heard by others, but they have forgotten that they receive the rewards right then and there, as Matthew 6 says. Pure and undefined religion has an audience of one. And the life of the Christian should be lived to please God. This is the main point of this verse. James had just finished the fact that they, we are to be obedient to the word. And, and why? Because God is watching. And, and really, God wants us to be like him. He has never asked us to do anything that he's unwilling to do himself. And if you go back and read these Old Testament passages about God's concern for the, for the widow or for the fatherless, he always uses himself as a guide for how we should practice this in our life. And he's, he's pointing us, our eyes and our heads, our hearts, to see how he views these people and how we should view them. We should seek to, to follow God and to be like him in this way. And this kindness that we can show to widows and orphans is a pure kindness. It is mercy for the sake of mercy because those who, who help widows and orphans cannot expect anything tangible in return. It's pure they really can't do anything to thank you. This is pure religion, a, a pure worship of God, serving the least of these. And serving those that are poor in the midst of hardships reminds us again of who we once were. It's, it's gospel work in many ways, gospel reminders, because it points our minds back to our poorness before we came to Christ. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're, we're blessed because we know our spiritual poverty. Because we know that apart from God's grace, we were estranged from God and more desolate than orphans. And by faith in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family. And so we should care for widows and orphans, living out the gospel principle of adoption of those in need. Now, how do we apply this verse to our church family? 
James is telling us that our care for the needy must not just be by supporting social programs or, or through the hands of others only. This should be read personally and applied personally. We recognize that there are social programs in our world today, of which I praise the Lord for, that help with those that are in need. But what can we do as the church? I only share this, not as an indictment, but as an encouragement to think and pray. I know that our people are most steadily against the pro-choice movement, and we should be. The abortion mills are still functioning, and we need to have those shut down. We continue to support ministries that battle against this. We support ministries like CareNet as one of those vital ministries. And as we pray and we hope that Roe v. Wade will be overturned in our lifetime, are we ready for it to be overturned? Are you ready for it to be overturned? Because if perhaps this happens in our lifetime, the work that would need to happen for orphans would triple or quadruple for us as the church. There are around 400,000 orphans nationwide right now. But if abortion were overturned, and Lord, we pray that it will be, that number would skyrocket. Are we ready? Are you ready to adopt? There's more than 400,000 churches in America. If just one church would adopt. See, there's, a, there's an effect there that we need to understand, that we need to pray towards, that we're ready for this. I believe that the need for adoption may hit us harder in the next 10 years than we've ever experienced before. Are we ready? And widows in our church, well, I want to brag for a moment. Because as a pastor, I'm so thankful for the church that God has given to me because it's proven time and again that you love those in our church that don't have any family. I regularly get reports of people going out to serve widows that I had nothing in, I had no connection to it. And I'm thrilled that I didn't have to say, can you go help? Because our people just go do it. Just thrills me as a pastor to see that. And yet there's more for us to do. There's more people in need that, that maybe you're here and, and you're in need and we don't know about it. We, we want to know about it. We want to be able to help serve you in this way. And I want to challenge you, church family. I, I know it's, it's one thing for us as a church as a whole to have a program and, and, and a good one to serve, but you are the church too. Like we gather as the church, but when we leave, we're still the church. So be the church where God has placed you and look in these ways to serve, to care for those that are in need. And we need to be mindful of this. And we as, as a leadership need to be mindful to bring these needs before you as the church family so you know how to serve and how you can step in and, and help others. So James has applied the word in two areas, controlling our tongue and caring for others. And last, true religion contrasts the world says there at the end of verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. He talks about the orphans and widows, and he says this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And the last point this morning continues in the path of living a life true to the word of God. James is advocating a separation in the world, not a separation from the world. From one perspective, the world is simply God's creation, but the world is also a system of thought, a system of values. 
And I believe that's what James is warning us against here. He, he later warns us in chapter four, you adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And today, I, Isaiah's lament in chapter five of his book is lived out before us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't that the world in which we live, friends? This is how the world thinks today. And James is cautioning us to not be drawn into their thinking. And this is a warning for us. Don't think like the world around you. And, there, and there's many, for good reason, that think, that they're worried about their kids, that the world will snatch away their kids with actions. But that's not always true. It usually happens with their minds, with their thinking. How they process what the world says and how they think. And we live in constant danger of having the way the world thinks rub off on us. And so our response isn't to run away. It isn't to live as hobbits in a hole, avoiding everyone in the world. That's not how we should respond. Our response should be to think about the world, what the world says and what the world does and discern whether this lines up with what the word says. First Thessalonians 5, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. As parents, we teach our children to have discernment. That's what we want them to understand as they leave our homes. Because we cannot cover every single sin that they'll face in this world. And here's news. It's going to change in the next 10 years anyways. Who would have thunk we'd be in the situation we are now with gender 15 years ago? We teach them discernment from what God's word says so that they can see it in the world and, and relay it back to the mirror. What does God's word says? We have to train them to think biblically. In so doing, we train ourselves to think biblically. So a couple caveats here as I end. And I read this this week. First, James is not suggesting a life of sinless perfection. It, it cannot happen. As long as we live in this fallen world, there will be temptation to sin. It's not possible for us to live in the flesh and to live this life perfectly before God. But God has given us his word. He's given us 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we, we, we can't live, we won't live perfectly in this world. Second, this call is not for Christians to withdraw, as I said, and to sequester yourself away from the world. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for me in John 17 that the Father would not take us out of the world, but that he would keep us from the evil one. That should be our prayers also. Our job isn't to hide out in our homes, but to live our lives radically different in the world in which we live and work. To live the Christian life, we must be different than the world. There needs to be a radical difference in how we choose to spend our time and how we choose to spend our money and how we choose to live our lives. And James says to us, true religion contrasts the world. Those are the three areas that James covers this morning at the end of chapter one about true religion, but there's gonna be more to come as we launch into chapter two. You see, in chapter two, he goes ahead and he shows us what it means to live a socially moral life. Then in chapter three through five, he goes and talks about being polluted by the world, leading a personal moral life as well. And even though James will, will tell you what to do, always nestled in after telling you 
or, or why he tells you what to do. He always says, because you do this because of who you are. And this is crucial, friends. God never tells you what to do without giving you the power to do it. And the power to live the Christian life comes from knowing who you are. The power to live, the, the, the reason to live, all that you do is because of who you are. And knowing who you are and who saved you makes all the difference in the world. Now, who are you? Who are you? James tells us to look into the mirror. What does it mean to live the Christian life? It's not merely just do this and do this and do that. The secret of the Christian life is to take the truth of the word, to lay it on our heart, to ponder it, to taste it, to chew on it until it ignites the center of our life and then we go and do the word. If your life isn't radically changed in the ways that he mentions in this book, you probably haven't taken it in yet because when you look in the mirror, you see yourself in and through the mirror. And what James is saying, he's saying, here's the difference between a religious person, a moral person, and a Christian. A Christian is someone who looks into the word of God, into the truth of God, and doesn't just see rules. He sees himself. And you come away with a whole new way of understanding yourself, and you see yourself in and through the truth. James never simply says, do this, do that. What does he do? He says, who is Jesus, and who are you now because of what Jesus did? And who is Jesus to you? And who are you to Jesus? And we need to think of this. We need to spend time in his word. And we weep. And we mourn for our sin. And then we get excited because of who Jesus Christ is. And what he's doing through us. And we're challenged to grow in likeness. And we think about it. And we, put, we take the word. We put it in our hearts. We take the mirror with us. And we ignite our lives to live for him. In accordance to what the word says. So friends, I encourage you, don't just look for rules. Look in the word to see yourself and then see Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that does not work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying about the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can gather together to sit under the preaching of your word. And I thank you for your powerful word that instructs us. That as we open it up, 
we can see ourselves. God, we thank you this morning for sending your son to come and rescue us when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Thank you for redeeming us, for, for buying us back from the slave market of sin. We could never free ourselves. Thank you for your rich mercy, your great love. Thank you for saving us and for placing us and seating us with Jesus Christ. Thank you for grace, God. unmerited favor. And God, I pray for those that are here this morning that are not your children. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would give them faith to believe and that you would cause them to be born again for your honor and for your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.